Hello and a warm welcome to episode number 8 of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. I'm the host, Paul, the true crime enthusiast of the title, not Ringo Starr, as was commented on on Twitter some days ago, although true fact, I was actually named after my mum's favourite beetle. I'm extending warm greetings and big thanks for joining me again this week. The podcast is going from strength to strength thanks to the decent reviews, follows and comments that I've received so far. It's helped give me a good perspective of things and some future directions that I wish to explore with the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. So that's ace. Cheers guys, thanks so much. I'd like to extend the offer again for any cases that you guys would be interested in hearing. Please feel free to contact and let me know. Who knows, they may even already be on my list. How I work is that I have a chalkboard on the side of my fridge at home that I keep a working list of upcoming episodes and case subjects, although I do chop and change the order quite a bit. This week's case again has been an example of me doing this, but the past couple of episodes have tied in with specific anniversaries, as it was 39 years almost to the day since Nora Trott's murder last week we covered, and the week before both cases took place on Halloween. Plus I don't want to do cases of too similar a nature back to back, that would become boring and repetitive, so that's another reason why I mix things up. It all seems to work out very well anyway. So, you know the type of cases we cover on the podcast. If you've one that intrigues you from these shows, please feel free to drop me a line about it. I'll always reply. I'm also open to suggestions about content or style of the podcast. For example, maybe a Q&A session is something I've been considering. What do you think? Any ideas, please let me know. This week I'm recommending another blog that I never miss a post of called Considering Cold Cases. It's a great blog and one that I have had contact with and have an upcoming collaboration with. The author is researching and writing a fantastic and interesting case for a future episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. It's all part of the true crime community this, doing guest pieces and we help each other out. It gets talented and dedicated researchers and writers out there and noticed. It's how I got started doing this podcast by doing guest pieces for Adam at the UK True Crime podcast. So I'm all up for paying it forward, I think that's how it should be completely, and I've no doubts that the upcoming case will be expertly written. It's an interesting and obscure one, as we like. I won't give too much away until I've read it myself though, so you'll just have to wait like I have to. As I said, the blog is called Considering Cold Cases, and as it says on the tin, it covers cold cases from a wide range of countries and victim profiles. It explains itself excellently in the About section of the blog. It appealed to me because I found in it a blogger who strives to do exactly like myself and others do, dig out those forgotten cases that deserve to be back in the public eye. Its content is the exact type I would look out for myself to read, and what better way than to write like what you would enjoy reading yourself. There's some fascinating cases on there, very well researched and presented, so please go and check it out, and look out for our upcoming episode in the near future. So this week on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, we are sadly reminded on a regular basis of the horrors and tragedy that gun crime can bring, with the obvious most recent examples to mind being the horrific massacre committed by Las Vegas gunman Stephen Paddock and the mass slaughter of churchgoers by Texas rampaging gunman Devin Kelly. In the United Kingdom though, although there are certainly instances, a massacre on the scale of these is unprecedented. In the past 30 years, there have been three of note that are vividly remembered to this day. There is, of course, the 2010 Cumbria massacre committed by rampaging taxi driver Derek Bird, 
That was the subject of the recent two-part Minds of Madness True Crime Enthusiast collaboration podcast episodes, by the way. There was also in 1996 the horrific Dunblane massacre in which 16 primary school children and their teacher were slaughtered in the school gymnasium by crazed killer Thomas Hamilton. So I personally believe that is the most infamous. I mean, the slaughter of young children is just sheer incomprehensible carnage. But first and foremost to many people's minds will be the 1987 Hungerford Massacre where gunman Michael Ryan stalked the streets of his hometown and killed 16 people, young and old, before taking his own life in a siege where he holed himself up in his old school and that lasted hours. These incidents remain some of the deadliest firearm incidents in British criminal history and out of the three, the picture of Michael Ryan is surely one of the best known images to a true crime buff. What may be more unfamiliar is the knowledge that the Hungerford Massacre became such an obsession with a disturbed young man, very similar in ways to Michael Ryan, that just eight weeks after the horror at Hungerford, he was to commit such horrendous crimes that ensured he was sent to Broadmoor Secure Hospital for life. Please join the true crime enthusiast as this week we look back at the case of Kevin Weaver. The majority of people have had romantic relationships break up. At the time, it can feel like the end of the world, but most of the time, time is a great healer, and people eventually move on, forget their heartbreak, and meet somebody else. But equally, for some people, they are unable to move on, and forget that person that they believe and feel to be the one. That person may occupy their every waking thought and moment. Love sickness, it could be called. And if it doesn't pass, then an unhealthy obsession with the object of your affection may develop, as we see in Hollywood films like Fatal Attraction and Play Misty for Me. Both of the antagonists in those movies are proper bananas, aren't they? Don't give her a rabbit. 24-year-old Kevin Weaver was very similar to Michael Ryan in many ways. He lived at home with his mother and sister in a small terraced house in the Rosebury Park area of the East Bristol district of Redfield. And like Michael Ryan, Weaver's father had died some years before. He was a former accounts clerk who was overindulged and spoilt by his mother. Whatever he wanted, he got. This seems to be a recurring theme, really. Perhaps it's some sort of misguided attempt to compensate for the loss of a parent. I don't know. Described as an overweight and spotty loner, if you do an image search for him, he reminds me of Flounder from National Lampoon's Animal House. Weaver had no job for years and instead lived off his mother's meagre earnings as a box office attendant at the Hippodrome Cinema nearby, spending his days skulking around the family home, watching violent action and horror films and overindulging in whiskey. Again, like Ryan, Weaver was a gun and survivalist fanatic, having many weapons that his mother had bought him and some that he had ordered himself through mail order. He was a licensed shotgun holder and was member of a nearby clay pigeon shooting club. Weaver hadn't always been this listless, but his life seemed to have spiralled downhill since 1985, as since then he had become lovesick and his mental state had deteriorated. For two years, he had sat at home brooding about his failed relationship with his former fiancée, 21-year-old Alison Woodman. Weaver and Alison had met in 1983 when she was just 16 and had become engaged just a year later. But by 1985, Alison had finally ended their romance after the latest in a string of fights and rows caused by Weaver's erratic and possessive behaviour. They'd split up 
and for two years Weaver had constantly hounded Alison in an attempt to win her back. He had plagued her at home with phone calls, followed her from her home in Black Horse Lane in Bristol's Down End district, and had waylaid her in the street constantly. It would be classed as classic stalking today, but back at that time it wasn't perhaps as widely accepted problem as it is nowadays, and the legislation has certainly changed concerning it in this day and age. Alison had resisted all of this attention, wanting to remain on good terms with him, but adamant that their relationship was over which Weaver took badly. The death knell for their relationship had finally come when, after a particularly turbulent period in the relationship, where they had actually long split up at the time, Alison had due to her good nature agreed to meet Weaver for some talks over drinks one evening in February 1987. However, whether Weaver had tried it on with Alison, or had yet again pleaded for her to get back with him and she was having none of it, the evening hadn't gone well, because he had then held a prisoner in his car, and threatened to kill her and then himself. She had managed to escape when Weaver got out of the driver's side of the car and went around to the boot, where a loaded shotgun and ammunition lay concealed under a blanket. When Allison fled, Weaver made no attempt to go after her, instead fleeing himself where he was finally discovered fast asleep in his car in a remote area of Aberystwyth in mid-Wales, and the shotgun and cartridges were still on the passenger seat beside him. Facing charges of kidnap and possible firearms offences, Weaver was arrested and his shotgun was taken from him, along with the other firearms he held at home. But for some inexplicable reason, Allison, who must have been very forgiving and good-natured indeed, contacted police telling them she was refusing to press any charges against Weaver and that as far as she was concerned, no crime had been committed. Now fair enough, I mean, try and keep the peace perhaps and be a nice person. But if you've split up with someone for a reason and they then hold you prisoner in a car and you know they have a penchant for guns and a loaded shotgun in the car, why would you write such a letter? It's just me, but I'd want that nut as far away from me as possible. You can't go on like that, can you? Weaver was not charged with any offence as a result of this letter, but he did have all his guns taken away and his firearms licence was withdrawn. He continued hassling Alison and she continued trying to be nice and stay on good terms with him and was later to even write a letter to Avon and Somerset police asking them to give Weaver his guns back. She even went as far as to say that Weaver was a genuine and responsible person. It took a similar request from his mother and a report from a police doctor who had examined Weaver following his arrest in Aberystwyth saying that he could find no evidence of mental illness with him and Weaver had his weapons returned to him and his firearms license reinstated. But that was enough for 21-year-old Allison, who decided that was it once and for all for their relationship, and attempted to sever all ties with him for good, thinking that was for the best. It was from this point that Weaver began to become more and more obsessive, and more and more deranged. For months he continued drinking heavily, brooding about Alison, following her and hanging about outside her workplace and home, caring about nothing except Alison and his bitterness at the fact that she had broken off their engagement. Then it reached August 1987, and on the 19th of August 1987, Michael Ryan committed the Hungerford Massacre. Weaver became obsessed with it. He recorded every piece of news footage that he could about Ryan's rampage, and watched it over and over obsessively. Perhaps watching the actions of Ryan and learning about the horror that he had created flicked some kind of switch in Weaver's mind, 
for from that point onwards, he decided that Alison was better off dead than alive, at least to him. The 14th of October 1987. Kevin's mother Margaret had risen early that morning and had headed out shopping, leaving Weaver and his sister Linda fast asleep in bed. Weaver awoke that day with something having snapped in his mind and he decided that this was it, this was the day Alison had to die. But he had to get to her, knowing that she would be at her work as an office temp at Alexandra Workwear in nearby Patchway, an outer suburb of Bristol. And at the time, due to his drinking, his mental state and or a combination of both, Weaver had no car to have him been banned from driving. But this wasn't going to stop him. His sister... 27-year-old Linda Weaver, who Kevin got on very well with usually, did have a car, but Weaver knew that she wouldn't let him use it due to his ban and her disagreement with him hassling Alison. Rising early that morning, Weaver went downstairs in the family terraced house, opened a bottle of whiskey and began drinking. He then went into the understairs cupboard and found his toolbox. Taking a heavy hammer from the box, he closed the cupboard door and crept back upstairs, passing his own bedroom and walking into the bedroom where his sister lay sleeping. Weaver raised the hammer and smashed it into his sister's skull at least 30 times. He put all 16 stone of his weight into the blows, and such was the force used to kill Linda that the handle of the hammer snapped. He then dragged his sister's mangled corpse out of bed, into the bathroom and placed her in the bath. Something in the dark recesses of his mind that day then decided his mother Margaret, the mother who doted on him and spoiled him, should never find out what he had done. Arming himself with a different hammer, he waited just inside the hallway for his mother to come home from shopping. And Margaret arrived home just before dinner time, having bought some pies for lunch for herself, Linda and Kevin. It is impossible to imagine Margaret's thoughts when she opened the door and walked into her hallway to be greeted by the sight of her son covered with blood and wielding a hammer. But mercifully, it would only have been a fleeting thought. Weaver was hiding behind the hall door and then he proceeded to batter his mother to death with the same maniacal rage that he had just killed his sister with. He struck Margaret time and time again with a hammer and when she was finally dead, he then carried her upstairs placed her body in the bath on top of his sister's body, then filled the bath with water. Weaver then calmly washed his bloodstained clothes, then tumble-dried them and redressed like nothing had happened. On top of the clothes he had been wearing when he had committed familicide, Weaver placed on armour-like body armour that he had purchased some months before, and now it was off to see Alison. Weaver again went to the cupboard under the stairs and came out with a golf bag, into which he placed an Italian-made single-barreled pump-action 12-bore shotgun, a Russian-made 12-bore shotgun, and a Spanish-made sawn-off shotgun. He also placed more than 500 rounds of ammunition into it. Then emulating Ryan's actions, Weaver turned on all of the gas appliances in the house and rigged up a detonator mine to the underside of the living room coffee table. This was a shotgun primed with a tripwire that would fire if tripped and with gas escaping into the house, it would cause a massive explosion. He then left the house carrying the golf bag, the bottle of whiskey and a bottle of lemonade, placed these into the car, and then in his sister's white marina car, drove the six or so miles to Alison's workplace. Arriving at Alexandra Workwear just a short time later, 
Weaver removed the Italian-made single-barreled pump-action shotgun from the golf bag and several rounds of ammunition. He then fully loaded the shotgun and entered the factory, heading straight for the computer room as he knew exactly where Allison would be working that day. Weaver found her at her desk, surrounded by her colleagues, and the sight of an armed man striding up to her desk caused a commotion in the office. There were nearly 30 people there, and the usual office chatter and bustle stopped. Some people burst into tears, whilst others stood rooted to the spot in shock. However, Weaver was oblivious to all except Alison, and when he reached her, he grabbed her by the wrist and said, Come on, Alison, we're leaving. You're coming with me. But Alison screamed and broke away, running to the other end of the room in an attempt to get to safety. Hearing the commotion, 29-year-old office manager David Purcell came out of his side office to see what was going on and immediately sprang into action. David was a former policeman and perhaps he still had that instinct to act or a heroic nature, but he immediately made to disarm Weaver. Weaver, however, was just a fraction too fast for him and taking aim, blasted David in the shoulder from close range. This caused a horrendous wound and David was left on the floor screaming in agony. Weaver then calmly walked up to him and shot him again at close range, killing him instantly. He then began firing indiscriminately about the room. One of the shots went through an office partition wall and struck 48-year-old accountant John Peterson in the back, mortally wounding him. John was to die in the ambulance rushing him to hospital. By now, the remaining staff in the room were cowering under their desks and daring to peek out they saw Weaver reloading his shotgun and then stalk up to Allison. He stopped by her, readied the gun and aimed it at her head. Allison looked up at Weaver, expecting any moment to be killed, but nothing. He had changed his mind, claiming later that he suddenly realised he couldn't go through with killing Allison because he still loved her. He altered his aim slightly and fired into the floor beside her. Still holding the shotgun, he simply said to her, This is your lucky day. Can you imagine just how frightening that must have been? Weaver then turned, left the computer room and headed back out of the factory. In a matter of minutes, he had gunned down two people and forever changed the lives of many. The employees of Alexandra Workwear had all scattered now in fear fleeing out of the factory closely stalked by the psychopathic Weaver. As the employees who had just witnessed the horrific and frightening events that had taken place just minutes before fled through the car park, terrified that they'd become the next victim of the madman, one member of staff lagged behind the others. Linda Smith had suffered polio, and as a result could not flee as quickly as the rest of the workforce, so she made it as far as a row of parked cars, but exhausted, she had to stop and take shelter by crouching behind the nearest one, a white marina. Unfortunately, the car she had picked to shelter behind was the car that Weaver had brutally murdered his sister to use. As 20-year-old Linda lay exhausted through fear and the effects of her illness, two lorry drivers parked at a nearby depot had heard the commotion and witnessed the employees flee in the building, and at first thought there had been an accident or perhaps a fire. Seeing Linda crouching behind the car and thinking that she may be hurt, the two men approached her to give assistance, and it was at that moment that Weaver came striding across the car park. As Linda looked up and screamed, the drivers both saw the reason why people had fled in a panic. Weaver got to the car and raised the shotgun as if in preparation to take his next victim, but one of the lorry drivers, 
perhaps through a knee-jerk reaction without thinking or just pure bravery, shouted out to him, Don't be silly, put it down. This must have struck a chord somewhere in Weaver's mind because he lowered the shotgun and instead said, I've done what I came here to do. He then got into his sister's car, placed the shotgun on the passenger seat and sped off. Once sure he was gone, the hysterical staff contacted police and emergency services who arrived at the scene shortly. A manhunt was immediately launched for the crazed killer, who was warned to be armed and dangerous, and teams of armed police were assembled to track down Weaver. Whilst Allison, who'd been the intended target that day, spoke to police and gave them his address and vehicle details, medical staff went to tend to the wounded, but there was little they could do for either man who had been shot. David Purcell had already succumbed to his grave wounds, and John Peterson was rushed to hospital but was pronounced dead on arrival. Meanwhile, with the description of him issued and details of the car he was driving, police began the manhunt for Weaver, and the first port of call was to his home address to see if he was either there or Weaver's family knew where he was. Before police officers reached his house, however, and just 45 minutes after the shootings, Weaver was apprehended by unarmed PCs Mark Nicholson and Peter Pugsley, about 8 miles away from the scene of the double shooting, on the A37 road between the nearby towns of Pensford and Whitchurch. The two officers had spotted the white marina car pulled over at the side of the road, and whilst one stopped the traffic, the other used a police loudhailer to order Weaver to lay down his weapons and exit the vehicle with his hands raised high. Weaver did get out of the vehicle, but in his hands held the bottle of whiskey, which he continued to swig from, and a newspaper. He then staggered to the other side of the road, sat down, and spread the newspaper across his knees. He offered no resistance when cuffed by police, and was immediately arrested in connection with the two murders at the factory and taken into custody. Once in handcuffs, Weaver talked immediately, expressing surprise. He said, Was it only two? I thought I'd shot at least three people. He then went on, saying in a calm manner, You'll find my gun in the car. I just wanted to shoot my girlfriend. I've wanted to kill her for two years, but when I saw her I couldn't do it. I changed my mind. You were lucky I didn't shoot you. Weaver then also said that officers should be careful if they went to his house, as he had left them a little surprise. When armed officers arrived at the Weaver house in Rosebury Park, they approached the door with caution. They'd just arrested a deranged killer with a bag full of guns who had freely admitted to killing two people and planning to kill another and who, by his own admission, had left police a surprise at his house. Knowing that Weaver lived with his mother and sister and with no answer at the door, the priority was to try to find his mother and sister and to make sure that they were safe and to see if they could shed any light on Weaver's actions that day. At the door of the property, however, Police noticed an overpowering smell of gas and decided that it was unsafe to enter the property, not knowing what Weaver had left for them. All houses in Rosebury Park were evacuated, the fire service were contacted and upon their arrival at the scene, arranged for the gas supply to the property to be turned off. When it was turned off, they then smashed the windows of the property to allow the built-up gas to escape. When it was eventually deemed safe for them to do so, armed officers entered the house. Making a sweep through the house, all the more urgently due to the massive amounts of blood that they found covering the hallway walls and carpet, 
officers found and disarmed Weaver's detonator mine. He had wanted to cause a giant explosion that would no doubt have claimed the lives of many people. They also found the horrifically mangled bodies of Margaret and Linda Weaver lying submerged in the bath, and realised that Weaver was at least a quadruple killer. Aside from the guns recovered from Weaver's car, a search of the Weaver home later revealed a mass more of ammunition, two homemade garrots, masses of survivalist literature and handbooks, a set of handcuffs and an extensive library of ultra-violent action and horror films. Weaver's extensive coverage of the Hungerford Massacre news reports that he had recorded was also found, and the parallels with Michael Ryan's rampage of just eight weeks earlier were drawn up. But back at the police station, Weaver was offering no explanation for his actions that day, except that he woke up determined to kill Allison that day, and nothing or no one was going to stop him from doing that. But when it came to it, he couldn't do it, because he claimed he still loved her. He went on to describe the struggle in which David Purcell had attempted to disarm him, saying, I felt threatened by him. I thought that he was going to overpower me, so I shot him. I shot him a second time to stop him suffering. Weaver was charged with the murders of his mother and sister, Margaret and Linda Weaver, office manager David Purcell, and office accountant John Peterson, as well as several firearms offences, and he was remanded in secure custody to await trial. Weaver's trial began at Bristol Crown Court nearly five months later, on the 28th of March 1988, where he pleaded guilty to four counts of manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. Queen's counsel for the prosecution, Paul Chad, told the court that Weaver had modelled himself on the mass killer Michael Ryan by emulating his actions, and he pointed out the parallels between Ryan and Weaver. Both had been brought up in female-dominated households, both were spoiled, both were brooding loners and heavy drinkers, and both spent many hours watching violent films such as Rambo or Death Wish. Perhaps as a result of all of these factors, the most striking parallel between the two was that both had developed a fascination and strong enthusiasm for guns. Paul Chad claimed that Weaver had even planned some sort of bizarre pilgrimage to visit the town of Hungerford. Weaver had told police that it was only Allison he intended to kill that day, but to do so he needed his sister's car, which he knew she would not relinquish to him. He simply decided to kill her and his mother and just take it. Weaver was described as a psychopath, one whose responsibility was severely impaired by his extreme bouts of depression. This was accepted by the court, and Weaver faced Mr Justice Webster, who sentenced him to be committed to Broadmoor Maximum Security Psychiatric Hospital for the rest of his life, labelling him an appalling danger to the public at large. With that, Weaver was taken away to Broadmoor to begin his sentence, where he remains to this day. His actions that October morning had left four people dead in the most horrific of ways and countless lives changed forever, including making two people widows and twin baby girls fatherless. David Purcell had, only three months before Weaver's rampage, become the proud and doting father of twin daughters. Alison Woodman for a long time unfairly blamed herself for Weaver's actions that day, tortured by her culpability in helping Weaver get his confiscated weapons back. But how could she have known what a psychopath would have done? The prosecuting counsel at Weaver's trial was quick to emphasise that it was Weaver who had committed the orgy of violence that day, and it was Weaver that should feel remorse if anyone did, not Alison, claiming of her, 
she's just an ordinary young woman like millions of others who break off engagements. She played no part in this disaster. And as for Weaver's remorse, Detective Chief Superintendent Ray Sargenson, who headed the investigation into Weaver's rampage, was to say of him following the trial, He is a cold, ruthless killer who inflicted some of the worst injuries I have ever seen in 25 years' experience. He has not shown one iota of remorse. Weaver's rampage, coming so close on the heels of the Hungerford Massacre and being Britain's second multiple killing in as many months, led to increased calls for the gun laws to be reviewed and control on ownership of weapons to be tightened, as well as levelling the violence shown on television and the availability of violent action and horror films. The then Home Secretary, Douglas Hurd, came under pressure for this and questions were asked, especially when it was revealed that Weaver had had his weapons confiscated under concerns of his mental ability and his licence revoked just a year before, but then reinstated. But Hurd was quoted as saying, and in my opinion very fairly also, There was no guarantee against the citizen who fills in every form, satisfies every requirement and obeys every law until the moment he commits a terrible crime. The actions of the Hungerford Massacre and Weaver's killings did lead to changes in the gun laws of the UK though. Public opinion and outcry made the Conservative government pass the Firearms Amendment Act 1988 as a direct result of these incidents and this meant that certain weapons were moved into the prohibited class of weapons. The Act banned semi-automatic and pump-action rifles and shotguns, except those chambered for .22 ammunition. Shotguns with 24-inch or longer barrels required a firearms certificate, and more dangerous types of ammunition, such as explosive or containing a noxious substance, were also banned. These were again reviewed nine years later following the 1996 Dunblane Massacre and again following the 2010 Cumbria Massacre. Now in the UK, a gun licence application is a lengthy and complicated process specially designed to reduce chance of anyone not in a fit mind to be able to obtain weapons. An individual applying for a gun licence must have two named character referees and must be able to provide access to their medical records and their general practitioner. Any criminal convictions, however minor, must be disclosed and the applicant must be prepared to undertake a police interview at any time. Police are also entitled to inspect the applicant's property at any time to ensure that weapons have adequate secure storage facilities. Each individual license must be renewed every five years and each individual weapon must be separately registered with differing licenses for shotguns and firearms. But is this enough? Or are we still waiting the day where someone, another Kevin Weaver, wakes up and commits an atrocity like he did? Pretty heavy stuff, eh? I wrote this episode before the mass shootings in Texas and I did consider postponing it out of sensitivity due to the nature of the content involved. But then I reconsidered. If you let the actions of the evil define what you do or how you react, and you don't go about your normal routine because of their actions, then they win, don't they? And that isn't happening here. Any and all victims, and indeed everyone affected by not just the Texas shootings, but the Las Vegas shootings also, and in general any victim of gun crime, have my deepest sympathy. As a former serving member of Her Majesty's forces, I spent many hours armed with both pistol and automatic rifle whilst on duty, 
and I was never anything but so constantly aware and responsible of the lethal potential I held in my hands. I can also testify to the thorough training given and the explanation to the responsibility held when in charge of a weapon that UK armed forces receive. And as I said at the start, mass shootings such as described here are thankfully quite few and far between here in the UK. Of course gun crime happens, but not on the scale it sadly seems to in other countries. Now I realise this may cause great debate, but what do you guys think? Are existing gun laws enough? What is the solution here to ensure that people like Kevin Weaver never commit atrocities like this ever again? I do believe that Kevin Weaver should never have had his guns given back to him and that by doing so this was a serious, serious error. Anybody showing any signs of instability, threatening to kill someone and holding them hostage for example, should not have access to weapons at all. The sad thing is, if Weaver was that determined to kill, then he could have used other means that were more freely available to him, such as a knife or a physical attack. If people are hell-bent on killing, then they will by whatever means. This is just one of those occasions where a simmering mental instability just boils over in an individual, as it did with Michael Ryan before this, and Thomas Hamilton and Derek Bird following it. But Weaver seemed to have an unhealthy obsession with the Hungerford Massacre, almost like he hero-worshipped Ryan and admired him. Add that misguided hero-worship to an angry brooding loner with violent obsessive tendencies and a cupboard full of guns, and it's got disaster written all over it. I'm looking forward to a lively discussion thread on the Facebook True Crime Enthusiast discussion group following this episode. I welcome all your opinions, as always, and please feel free to give them. The Weaver case wasn't one familiar to me, perhaps it's massively overshadowed coming so close on the heels of the Hungerford Massacre. Believe me, it was quite difficult to research, but thanks to diligence and me having an extensive and in-depth true crime library, we got there in the end. I hope you found this case as fascinating as I have and enjoyed the episode. If so, please feel free to review the podcast on iTunes. My pleasure as always to have researched and brought you the case of Kevin Weaver. And I shall be back with you next week with another case. Next week is another one from the archives of the True Crime Enthusiast blog. And it's a bit of a shocker, so be prepared for that. With that in mind, I do hope you will all join me next week on True Crime Tuesday. I'm Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast, wishing you a happy and safe week. And I shall speak to you next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. Always loved saying that. Be safe all. I'll speak to you then. Goodbye for now.